Hello, welcome to Brother, Brother, Brother Podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I am here with my two brothers, Christian Lewis and Jeremy Sartori, the original Skungili head. Um, this is, <laughs> when we started this podcast six years ago, uh, and 200 episodes ago or so, I, this is kind of weirdly the uh, ideal that I had in mind. This is... Um, we're talking today about De La Soul's Three Feet High and Rising, an album that Jeremy and I, you know, really grew up with and adored. But due to uh, litigation, uh, the album has not been available for about 30 years. So Christians never heard it. And again, this is the sort of, uh, you know, this is the test that we were we were sort of, or the theory we were kind of testing when we started this podcast. Like, how do you experience music differently generation to generation? And this is uh, an album that has been, you know, frozen in amber for 30 years. And so we have the opportunity for once to get a an opinion from Christian on an album that we adore <laughs> As a first listen, it's kind of crazy. Well, it's certainly not the first time you've had an opinion from me on an album you adore. <laughs> um, I, I think uh, it's it's pretty incredible though to think like um, how how rare it is to get the sort of unadulterated, like totally fresh look at something. You know, I, the truth is I've I've obviously heard you guys talk about it forever. Um, this is not something that like I couldn't have found. Um, it's just. It's amazing how dependent we are on like the streaming platforms that we listen to on a daily basis um, to to sort of help us like curate you know playlists that we listen to, and I think it's it's just one of those things that like by virtue of being just out of reach and like just inconvenient enough, I never really went looking for. And you know I've obviously heard a ton of the songs thrown into like DJ sets before, you know um, in. I don't know. Uh, actually, probably thought? not. Uh, not in television and and movies, right? No, um, there's no there's no. no use. But it's sort of legendary, and like put in this pantheon with Tribe Called Quest and like Jungle Brothers and you know a, a group of of musicians who um, I, I think are like very near and dear. Uh, but it just was. It just wasn't. You know, it's the missing it, piece. It wasn't on the turntable, right? I would almost say everybody you probably love or, or kind of got into from Hip Hop Far Side, you just named Tribe and, and Jungle Brothers, all the way out to like Outkast and I think other sort of pinnacle groups, um, or at least sort of um, what you would call kind of like underground or alternative hip hop to some degree, like was influenced by this record for sure, you know, and by the production on this record. Um, it was around, like, I, you know, you could get. I don't know when they stopped selling it, but when it went out of print, it went out of print. And then there was like a few like limited releases on vinyl. There was a brief period of YouTube um, for Three Feet High and Rising. And there was a, uh, did you mention the album in the beginning when? Yes. Okay. <laughs> and, um, and then, uh, you know, like, I think, you know, I, I last had it on cassette, you know, so it was definitely a while ago. Oh, you had the single for... Um... Uh, for, for me, myself, and I. I had, um, I had, uh, I did have like a single for me, myself, and I with the, with the B side of Ghetto Thing. No joke. <laughs> then I got in a uh, middle school dance. So yeah. Nice. That's a, um, it's a, but slinging, it's one of those tapes out of a trunk. It's it's one of those things that has been mythologized to such a degree and and sort of celebrated to such a degree in print that you start, you know, when it when it 
came to light that Christian had never heard this album before, I I almost started doubting whether it was as good as I remembered, you know? Um, oh, 100%, yeah. And I or also... Like, well, well, people like it as much as I did because in 1989, things were different, you know? It was like... Yeah. It was a very different musical. I mean, even, even throwing it on the other day, I, I was, uh, you know, walking down the street listening to it and realized that, like, the... I mean, not only did the technology that I'm listening to it on not exist, like the sound quality of uh, the headphones I have on didn't exist. You know, it's right. um, the wireless you know, I, headphones. Yeah. So when I was listening to this, um, it was a lot of times in my car or John Mulally's car and on a cassette deck that kind of blew. You know, it was a you know, an eight-year-old, you know, six-year-old Subaru, um, you know, with the factory-installed cassette player. Um, it wasn't like I had a, a booming car stereo. So, like, I wasn't sure whether my love of this was was a romantic thing that, you know, had just sort of grown uh, like a daisy in my mind. But uh, it, I do, it has this, it holds this spot in my you know, uh, in the canon or the things that I hold most dear, the music I hold most dear. And, you know, I was, I was honestly a little bit, and I'm sure Jer was too, a little bit nervous to, uh, to put it to the test. Oh yeah, definitely. I, I think, you know, to, to get into like some of the history of this is going to be really, um, uh, it's going to be really interesting for me. Cause I, to be honest with you, I don't know it that well. I, I have like, we've obviously done, um, you know, we, we've done podcasts before on, on like this this era of hip hop and, and like some of our favorites, but I, I think exactly how Dela kind of fits into the, the picture um, would, would be really like kind of fascinating. But then I also, I, I think it's like worth talking about like the aesthetic and like just the sort of vein of, of hip hop and rap that this like exists in because it's, you know, it does help connect the dots between like, I mean, this was a time where like sort of all of it was more serious, right? Um, well, it was, it was, I, I can, I would like to set the new. table actually, if I could, because I think what, um, you know, anecdotally, I think one of the funniest stories about this, and it's been told and retold a million times, but this album came out about three or four months before Paul's Boutique, and the Beastie Boys were recording Paul's Boutique with the Dust Brothers out in, um, out in LA, and they got a copy of this album. And they're like, "Fuck, we might as well quit." <laughs> um, you know. This is this is like uh, this is like the Beatles listening to Pet Sounds and being like, hundred percent." Yeah, definitely. <laughs> exactly. It was exactly like that. I mean, they were putting together their sample masterpiece, Paul's Boutique, and they heard this, and they were like, "Oh, damn it, man! Yeah, <laughs> fuck are these guys?" <laughs> Which, you know, and this is like a bunch of. I mean, not that the Beastie Boys were much older, but they, uh, you know, this is a bunch of high school kids from Long Island, uh, De La Soul. So. Um, you know, but also out around that time is takes a nation of millions, um, straight out of Compton. So things are getting, you know, the shift to, um, you know, the, uh, political with pu public enemy, you know, and, and public enemy being from the same neck of the woods as De La Soul. So obviously very influential, but also, you know, completely divorced, uh, musically from, you know, the where they were, but production value-wise, it was not crazily dissimilar. Like, the the technology that had, was new and was being utilized by both yeah, bands Bomb was pretty Squad similar. Yeah, was revolutionary, too. I mean, they were, yeah. they were something that brought hip-hop to another level of, of production. 
And then Straight Outta Compton was just straight up badass. You know, it was bleak. It was, you know, treacherous. It was, you know, I mean, officially Ice-T gets credited for inventing gangster rap, or in the term at least was was his uh, was attributed to his music. But I mean, when Straight Outta Compton came out, it was like everybody made everybody. I mean, I, I hate to put it in these terms, but everybody else just felt like a fucking pussy. You know, it was like <laughs> it was so badass. And I mean, even the album cover. I was looking at both album covers side by side yesterday, <laughs> and you know, De La Souls is like three good guys like <laughs> looking up and yeah, one you know, with glasses and, and, and like one. Yeah, and Straight Outta Compton is the entire band looking down at you because they just killed you. But I would yeah, also say... they just kicked the shit out of you yeah. and, um, <laughs> and you're not worth it. You but know, it, um, it was... And... Sorry, I'm going to jump in one second to... with the aesthetic that? thing that Christian was talking about because you did have like 80... I think one thing like just in hip-hop and people call kind of the golden era, I think 88, 89 is like the beginning of that golden era if you really look at it. It's when things start to get pretty experimental, and when just named two obviously like huge albums. But below that was like the Jungle Brothers' first album came out in '88. The second one, done by the Forces of Nature, so they're really kind of that originator of that like Afrocentric, you know, kind Hippie. of lot. Yeah, sort of late uh, sampling well, funk and the, dreadlocks. The, the native tongues were these all. All these folks like went to high school together, or a couple of them did, right? And like, Q-Tip, all... I think, was was from a different q-tip was from the city correctly right but then it was was from queens it's tribe the jungle black brothers de la soul leaders of the new school which was where black sheep and queen latifah queen latifah moni love um who was you know british um like uh who was british but lived in new york moved to new york um and uh who else was in there? There was one other, wasn't there, Jerry? Those are kind of the originals. It kind of expanded later. I mean, Black Sheep and people Money like Love. that um, came the in. Leaders of the New School was Busta Rhymes. It was, you know, Busta Rhymes was in that band. Yeah. Exactly. It was Money Love, though. Yeah, yeah Money Love was, was a solo artist. Yeah. Was, was a sidekick of Queen Latifah and then went out on her own. It yeah. was great. Yeah. But this year, 89, you also have like EPMD, Unfinished Business, Cactus Album by Third Base, which is actually a white, white group, but they, you know, got a really lot of... Really good. I just, I just remember this time watching something like UMTV Raps, and there was like sort of two camps. There was like the EPMD, NWA, you know, and I wouldn't even consider them the same kind of group, but it was a more Derek street and oriented, you know, Gangstar, No More, Mr. Nice Guy around this time. And then you had the kind of more Chaos. pop, like Heavy D... Cool Modi, you know, people like that. So you had people rhyming about like what was going on in the in the ghetto in a sort of pop format, and then people that were more sort of, I guess you would say like street format. And then you had people like the Jungle Brothers and Queen Latifah that was this sort of like positivity vibe or you know, Afrocentric vibe, things like that. That was and it was all kind of mixed in. I mean, no one could do it better by DOC and it was just a, it was just kind of an eclectic time, and this is kind of the beginning of what then goes on to be like you know kind of that early '90s that probably stuff you love, Christian, and like I certainly love. Um, but I th- I think it, it seems like what what I'm what I'm hearing you guys say is that like I mean part of this was the fact that you know obviously hip hop had been around at this point for like let's call it in one form or another ten years, um, but it was like you know the the growth the growth of the the um, different branches of uh, of the 
the form had like really accelerated because you you had you know all of a sudden there was like a commercial kind of mainstream version that was like starting to gain traction but then you've also got um you know a, a sort of a more like gritty new york authentic saying like let's keep it at the street like um that's where this comes from you know it's this isn't like this isn't intended to be exported to the suburbs and like turned into club music this is intended to be like uh, a story about i don't like, even know if it was um, that thought out it, i think it I was think more it was. like no I, i'm just like, trying to describe like the styles yeah, right now and in then retrospect, you, have, like, you can make that distinction yeah um yeah but here's a i mean here's the real common denominator is that um you know and i heard that this is not you know, my original thought, this is something I've, I've heard, you know, there, it went from block parties to, you know, recorded music with, with, um, you know, drum machines. And this is the, basically the introduction of the sampler and the sampler comes in. It's, I mean, it's a technological, um, move forward that just absolutely changes it, but also turns it into a, artist and producer medium as opposed to just being the artist and the dj right and where prince paul who's basically the fourth member of de la soul for the first you know three albums and especially three feet nine rising is such a huge part of this album you know i mean it's Mm -hmm. you can't talk about this album without talking about prince paul and what he did here you know but the other thing too i think that's interesting is chart wise like you were starting to get hip-hop charting or rap charting at the time so like you know, this is the same year uh, Bust a Move was the number one single and I think won a Grammy. And, and uh, you know, Tone Loke had a, a hit song. Wow, and so man. it was kind of, it was bleeding out of like what was, you know, quote unquote, like R&B radio or whatever the hell they called it, like urban formatting. And then it was something, kinda, something, you know, something very euphemistically racist. Yeah, right. Exactly. But then it was like going into the same. And I think the cool thing about De La Soul, which was unique, is it wasn't segregated even within hip-hop like me myself and i and potholes on my lawn at least as far as i could tell being a kid at that time listening to music and being around other kids listening to music flowed just as much as nwa or queen latifah or um the cactus album or and you know what i mean it was just kind of listened to it wasn't like oh they're hippie and you know earthy or like sort of you know more um alternative or anything like that it was like oh that's cool and i think they really did bring a dance element that, and sort of Jungle Brothers actually, like that, uh, you know, some of these other guys like EBMD and, and Gangstar and people like that were not bringing, it was more sort of straightforward about the rhyming. Yeah, the Beastie Boys were, like, were well, elemental well, but, in that too. Wait, yeah, I mean, wait a second, because like, if you go, if you wind the clock back five or six years, I mean, I think like a lot of what early rap and, or I guess what early hip hop was like came out of nightclub music right like it was it was dance music it was party music that that was like that was yeah that was the that was the break i mean that was the like dj you know creating a a break beat or whatever it was and like it was guys who like scratched the record for the first time who you know were otherwise like up there spinning yeah, like I mean, disco albums, basically. Rapper's Delight um, is, is built on a chic sample. I mean, you can't get more Yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> but if you go to from there to then nineteen like eighty eight and nineteen eighty nine and listen to those those records, right? The main kind of the best hip hop records of those those two like eras, you're gonna find that like a lot of it is less dancey and more like 
lyric driven more i mean public yes. enemy is a great example of nwa they're not that's not dance music you know what i mean like those are very lyric driven they're cool sounding and they're great sounds yeah yeah, yeah. i've um, done a lot of dancing where, to it <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, I guess my, my my point is that it's like uh these guys are are um rediscovering something that was that was already totally. true about yeah. hip-hop but then they're going back even further and saying like you know what guys like we don't just need to sample like today's pop music which was what was happening in 1989 right like you're you're you know playing chic and and like adding a break for you right like right. we can we can actually go back to the <laughs> why not go back to the 50s why not go Man. back to the 60s why not sample music that was like rock bands and not just uh not just you know or like jazz or whatever and it was like the, i mean that was like the, yeah. the innovation that i think just like yeah let's sample hall and you know it's, <laughs> yeah. well it was it was the you know it was the beginning of the crate digger and that you know yeah. and it, it was the eclecticism of these guys that was the funny part you know i mean it's like the album is named for a johnny cash song you know <laughs> what the fuck like who, who would who would have uh who would have thought that the three of us would um would would like you know be have the most affection reserved for for guys who are also massive fucking music nerds yeah exactly <laughs> but the funny thing was too is that you know i mean these there there, there was a famous uh um and, and you're gonna laugh at the uh at the stakes of this one christian um this, this is when you realize this is an old album but tommy boy who was the label that put it out offered five hundred dollars five hundred american dollars to anybody who could identify the the sample, one of the samples in, I mean, not one of the samples, a very specific sample on this record, and it was from a very very obscure doo-wop album, and nobody ever claimed the prize. So That's it was, awesome. it was, you know, it was um, the 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 breadth of of what they had found. Like they they were looking, they were it was competitive within this group to find the most obscure shit that you could make music with the most obscure music to, that you could use on this record. Well, well and I, and I think this, if it like, well, for, first of all, I think you're, you're helping me draw, like form a picture in my mind of what it was that you all actually sat around and did all day long before email, um, <laughs> which includes uh, writing letters to your local uh, record companies with quills um, to try and win $500 prizes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I, I think um, the, it, this, this really gets to like, not to get too like abstract and philosophical and then i promise like we i really want to talk about like just reactions to the album and like kind of talk track by track through this a little bit because i think that's that's like what was so much fun about listening to this but it gets at the very heart of like what is like what is artistic innovation and like at some level everything is going to be like pretty derivative you know it's like you you take something that's old you take inspiration you filter it through your own lens and like you create something new and i I think like you know the recording industry is like has done this forever and like that's kind of what inspiration is and means but like at the same time like people who own intellectual property don't love that (laughs) um and uh it just becomes at a certain point like there's just there are infectious hooks, right? Like there are melodies, there are uh, note sequences that like, it, can you own that? It, can you possess it truly? And like, I mean, in this case, you know, I, I think you have something that's truly new, like truly innovative and and like wonderful in its own right, and yet 
you know, it just a million lawsuits waiting to happen. I want to, I want to, I want to talk about two lawsuits briefly. Um, one not involving De La Soul, which is when you asked about if you can own, um, you know, a sequence of chords or whatever. And uh, there was a band in the '90s called Negative Land, um, who were very experimental, uh, industrialish kind of band. I don't know if you've ever heard of them, but. Um, you may have seen a kid all in black with a t-shirt on once. Yeah, but they uh, they had an album. They put out an album in the '90s called U2, just to fuck with everybody. So you know, it was just on the cover of the album in giant block was it, letters. Was it said, U2 U- spy playing with the, with U2. the letters U2. Yeah. And so that became a lawsuit because obviously a lot of you know dumb U2 fans went out and bought this new album because they thought there was a new U2 album called Negative Land. Um, that was an interesting, because, you know, how can you really own and a letter? Boy, were they surprised. Yeah. Well, no, they did it antagonistically, obviously, but they they did, you know. No, no, I mean, boy were, was, boy, were the kids who came oh, home yeah. with the album surprised. Yeah. It was like, a, I mean, they were Negative Land was like a skinny puppy. They were like r- r- pretty rough. And um, But can you own a letter and a number? You know, and that was basically what they were trying to challenge. And it was a, that was an interesting case. That is apropos of nothing here. But the other uh, much more germane lawsuit, obviously, is the lawsuit that was um, brought against De La Soul for intellectual property, whatever the actual charges were. Um, and the anecdotally, the story, yeah. the story went like this. The song on the album they got sued for is Christian the the French instructional tape yeah. uh, uh, song where they just play a you know sort of um, scratch and remix a, a French instructional tape over That's... a turtles song and um, the girl transmitting from Mars transmitting from Mars yeah and the so the turtles were part of Frank Zappa's universe. They and they had some, you know they had some good songs, um, including the one that was sampled here. But apparently the guy from the turtles, I can't remember if it was Flo or Eddie or which one, but it was a 1968 single. You showed me by the turtles. Great song, by the way. And um, but That's why they it. the guy, <laughs> the guy's daughter, was listening to it, and the guy goes listening to Three Feet High as well. The girl's, the guy's daughter was listening to Three Feet High and Rising, and he, and the guy goes, "What the fuck is that?" And she goes, "It's De La Soul." And he goes, "No, it isn't. That's my fucking song." And um, <laughs> <laughs> that is how that is the genesis of the lawsuit. Um, they sued for I think two and a half million dollars, which is you know far more than Tommy Boy was going to make. You know, it was going to pay, and or Warner's. Uh, was going to pay and it's been locked up in in litigation ever since but if you look at the liner notes on this thing like donald fagan has a writing credit on this uh daryl hall has a writing credit on this but the turtles did not get a writing credit on transmitting from mars well and some and, of the uh, sorry, yeah some of the they thought they only had was, to clear the the most obvious yeah shit. the big ones yeah it was like they had sent in the tommy boy stuff and and at that time you know the argument between the, the group and tommy boy was you know, we sent everything in and Tommy Boy like really just kind of cleared the ones that were 
like the Donald Fagan or the the Hall notes and and that other one was so buried or whatever the, you know the chord progression but who knows who you know we weren't in chord with them obviously but like it was a you know what a fucked up thing you know so the turtles have fucked so, up so so the argument was that the so the argument I, I didn't I didn't even I, I didn't know this this part of the history right that, that like Dela basically said we put this together we weren't trying to like deny people credit for it we just yeah. We they just, just did the it, hell out of things. It was a new thing. It was like pe- samples were a new thing. You didn't have a sampler three years before that. It, um, you know, or, and if something like Bust a Move where, you know, the sample is very obvious, you pay one clearing fee. On yeah. this one, there's, and on Ball's Boutique, <laughs> you know, there's, I think there's Trillion. 60 plus artist samples sampled on this yeah it's the the right it's the writing versus the performing royalties right and like the the writing you know is what it is obvious right it's what it says it is it's lyrics and music and then the performing um is uh is the actual like recording artist right um so so with stuff like i mean a good the easy way to think about it is like when some famous pianist like records a a like Chopin or something right like they don't um uh that Chopin doesn't like get royalties for it but the performance credit the, the performance royalty goes yeah, to the person who, like, recorded yeah. in the room yeah in most cases if you write your own music and you record your own music like um you know uh whether it's like Simon Doom or the Bones of J.R. Jones like you get the the performance credit and you get the writing credit um but in this case, like they were trying to divvy it up, and I assume that a relatively like unsophisticated record label at the time probably was just like, yeah, we're not gonna go knocking on doors to see who we can pay. Um, <laughs> so we don't hear it. We don't think the sample's in there. We're just like gonna pick the ones that we do hear. You know, mm-hmm. I it's it's easy to imagine how like that was. I mean, obviously that's not super it's a, honest. It's yeah. It, it, it was it was a I believe it was a relatively honest mistake you know what I mean but it, it did uh, result I mean then the result is you haven't heard this album was there was there strife between was there like friction as a result of that between the label and between Dela probably I assume okay or but they were on the same side of the, the well no I mean I think it's you know table. It's, but it like fucked you know up I remember <laughs> I remember you know meeting. Um, uh, Chris Difford from Squeeze a number of years ago, and he was telling a story about, uh, you know, he didn't even know who owned his um, publishing rights anymore. Like, he's yeah. like, I believe it's a Dutch bank, but I don't know. Yeah, um, you know, and so that's, you know, that's what you're talking about. So you're talking about, like, you know, multitudes of corporations later. And, you know, I, the, the, the legal part is is way out of my depth. I don't, you know... Um, but they do sort of talk about, about but... it pretty openly too, and I think Tommy Boy, yeah, Tommy Boy, I think had a little bit of a reputation for for not always taking care of its artists and had some issues, and you know um, the other pieces. And Prince Paul talks about this on the the Open Mike Eagle Pod, um, where he just did a whole season with him a few years back, and he talks about the fact that these guys were like 19, 18 years old, you know, seventeen years old, and and he's like, look, we didn't have money, so like sue us like what we didn't get it you know like we didn't mm-hmm. get we figured that stuff labels deal with like we didn't even he's like look you know we turned our stuff in we said these are the songs we sampled like we did you know our due diligence or whatever so he claims you know but like um 
the rest of it. Sorry, I yeah, only had t- I'm, I'm 19. I only had time to become a paradigm changing fucking DJ and musician, <laughs> yeah. not also become like one of the greatest legal minds in a generation. <laughs> Truly, and, and I do I think mean, it was so new, like to what Wayne said. And this changed. He also actually, which is kind of interesting, talks about in that same episode how it absolutely changed everything after because nobody you definitely cleared everything afterwards or you like brought in your own keyboard and reworked it a little bit you know or you did like things that you you know you can you can tweak it to a point like change this a little bit here and and do things like that and that's what completely changed going forward but that this album is the album that caused all that unless you're the verb look i we all we all understand why it exists and like it would be fucked up if uh if a, a television show or like hbo could like use anybody's music without paying for it you know mm-hmm. it would be messed or like that would be bad. I mean, like, yeah but like <laughs> we don't um I, I think at the same time like you know like led zeppelin isn't like recording a lot of those the songs for the first time right um hell i mean even sunhouse isn't right like whomever it is these are these are like old um uh many of them like traditionals and i think you know the idea that that somebody's putting their own brand on it is just uh but they're again they're making something new um and and i think that's why it's just got to be a judgment call every time um but the law is not always that cooperative in that respect so that said what'd you think of the album i thought it was awesome um i I have to say like going into this i was not uh i was not like a hundred percent sure what i was gonna think um obviously i thought there would be the potential that this was going to feel a little tired um, and a little sort of time and place. And, you know, that wouldn't bother me necessarily. There are plenty of things I would, I would like in that context, but I was so hopeful that I was going to get to love it, like on its own kind of merits and like really immediately connect with it. Um, I have to say I did. It's not something that takes more than a single listen uh, to to like really feel like you you kind of know inside and out and it doesn't doesn't hurt that I, I have heard um a bunch of these songs before but like as a as a end-to-end like needle drop and listen of this album um it really delivers uh i think you know starting from the weird ass intro um which uh which is sort of mimics a game show um, which is sort of a theme that runs through the record. Uh, I think kind of like, forget about it halfway. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny though because, like, I mean, I've never really known the full history, I guess, of like where where these like intro skits come from or came from originally. Mm-hmm. But like, it's this sort of multi. Um, I don't, they're just so weird. And they, they like, you know, Eminem was like famous for doing them, right? Like Jay-Z always had them. Um, like the Fugees and Fuji La have like pretty fucking funny ones. Um, but it's like, it's a very, very odd thing to break up the music with those types of uh, like inside jokes, basically. Um, and it kind of feels like you're getting let in on this this group of friends who are like having a ton of fun though, and it does set the scene or set the the mood, I guess. Um, and then to go from that into uh, three schoolhouse rock, basically. Um, and you know, I think 
I was excited by that. Like, really keeps up the energy. I was a little concerned that there was going to be a drop after that, and it was just going to be a bunch of stuff I didn't know. Um, but the uh, the they keep up the energy. The is is Buffalo's what's it called? Buffalo Stance. The song. The Nina Cherry. Nina song? Cherry. Yeah, is that in this? No. What's that? What's that beat in change? The or cha- is it change and speak or cool breeze on the rocks? Oh, the the second or the song after uh, three's the magic numbers you're talking about. Change and speak. Yeah, there's like a, yeah, um, change and speak. But that's got like a pretty. It sounds like the the Neon Cherry song. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, the funny thing is, I don't even know the, like. I don't know the exact names of these songs. I've listened to this album. Eight billion Before times. Discern track listings, and on yeah. many of the many of those listens, it was on a cassette that probably didn't have any writing on it. You know, or said "De La Soul." Um, you know, it was like it, I have listened to this a million times. I do not know the names of the actual songs. I know how to identify them. I know how to say "Jennifer O Jenny," but I don't know if that's the title of the song. You know, um, it's just funny. Jennifer taught me. Parentheses, yeah. Derwin's Revenge. Yeah, it's funny, though. I mean, do you know that? Would you know the name of that song, Jer? Probably not. I, I always would have thought of it as Jennifer O'Jenny. <laughs> yeah. Same. Yeah. It's, it's, play, you know, play Jennifer O'Jenny. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's, 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 a, it's funny. I mean, that's another... I, I remember you know, every of minute of it, every beat and every word in it. But. Well, that's the funny thing, is that like, that's another distinction that, that I don't think you'll ever know, Christian, is like not knowing the names of the songs because you don't have the the physical media uh you know in front of you because it just yeah you know, it was like passed along or it was burnt you know like you would i guess you yeah. would have with cd burning probably but um yes and, and no but and like, attention i think to cds were like the peak uh, you know, <laughs> and and state of mind probably <laughs> um but uh i i think like the, it's interesting for me because CDs were probably peak like track selection and like track awareness. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, yeah, and maybe that's true in Spotify. You can finally like, move it around. Yeah, I the listen albums. to shit so much, and I just throw on albums that like I don't. I still don't know song names. Like I've never been good at that. Um, Wyndham, you're actually way better at that than I am. And I well, think maybe from way that back. has to do with the fact that like, yeah, I used to read liner notes a lot. You know, I I was I, you know. That's what we did before the internet. We read liner notes, um, before, yeah, and, all music and, and, Google. and we gaslit each other by gaslight. You know, um, we just don't. You know, like I don't think. You know, it's just so funny to think of like that as another element of this. Like that there is, you know, I know this album as an album. Always, like I as never it, think of this. DJ said. Yeah. yeah, I don't ever think of, of breaking this up. I never put songs by De La Soul on mixtapes. I just, no, definitely this was not. an album you threw on, and it was. It Unlike a perfectly. lot of other hip hop, really. Yeah. You know, like, I feel like hip hop something that is very single driven in general and, and uh, track driven. I mean, there's obviously some masterpieces. This is, is one of them, probably the top for me, but like, it's, it's still, you know, even Tribe, who I love, and I mean, I'm, I'm probably my favorite hip hop group of all time, is. Tribe and I still pull songs off of a tribe where I, I never did Dayla and I'm glad you kind of had that initial impression because going back to it Christian like 
I was a little even. The skits were kind of like, are those funny still? Like they're they're, they're still funny. Like what does Touche I mean, Lele Poo mean? Fibers are in a shredded <laughs> weed. Okay. Touche Lele Poo mean is just like it's fucking ridiculous. And funny. Yeah, that well, so that actually was kind of funny, but only because it's also like a stupid inside joke that I totally. share with Wyndham, which yeah. is or or you, right? Which is just yeah. like saying dumb shit in French. It's yeah. like that's funny to me, and I don't know why it's funny. And also funny I think the fact funny. that there's. I think the song De La Orgy, by the way, um, which, by the way, I, this is the other thing I was going to mention. I didn't know that there was a precursor to the Dr. Dre skit, Pause for Porno, um, <laughs> which uh, which came on halfway through this or three quarters of the way through this. But, like, in the Dr. it's, like, so, um, I don't know, like over the top and in the dr dre version whereas i thought like in this it was just kind of funny because well, you can imagine these guys like goofing around and basically totally. like that's what they're doing like I mean, they're right it's like pranking on everybody who's listening to it like loud in their room right well, i was i was thinking like, you know and, and this is you know just to um put a finer point on it the you know i was thinking of like you know straight out of compton you get a line like i find a good piece of pussy and go up in it and then you listen to this, and it's, there's like more euphemisms for boners. And like, it's like everybody's got dandruff. Yeah, yeah. Drop, drop me like a homework excuse. You know, it's like this is about like teenage kids that are are goofy. Yeah, and you know, I mean, well, like, the whole Dante's a scrub. He was the A and R guy. Tommy Boy assigned to them, and they just sort of yeah. like fucked with him all the time. They're just like. Because <laughs> like, it annoyed them that he was around. And like, the other it. funny thing is, <laughs> is I, I want to get your opinion on this too, Christian, because this is, you know, I, this is a language, you know, there's this inside joke language, but they, but it's always, it's, it's really understandable on a first listen. Like, you know what yeah. Buddy is, you know what Jimmy is, you know what um, a scrub is, you know, you know, it's like. You understand just by the by virtue of its by the you know context they put it in what all these things are, but you can also tell that this is a private language that you aren't you know you, you're privy to it, but you're not you know it's not yours. And um, but yeah, it, I'm it, it all to think makes of sense. a good example. But I, I'm I'm trying to think of a, a good example from like you know uh, fiction writing, which is probably and the first thing that comes to mind just because like there are so many different. Um, like Anthony Burgess, Clockwork Orange. I mean, you you get this. Yeah, well, I was language. gonna say like Marlon James, right? It's like there are these invented languages. Or that's not invented. That's like, but it's it's a like it's a patois, foreign. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a it's a very foreign to you at first, but then like once you pick up on the rhythm and the cadence of it, and like um, you know the context and the emphasis, it's like you you've if you've been a te- you know if you've been a teenager in a high school before, like you get what's going on more or less because the same shit is going on for every teenager in every high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and that part makes it like, yeah, instantaneously kind of relatable. Um, and, and really great for those reasons, you know? Did you know what a Luden was? Oh yeah, Luden was, but that actually made me laugh. No, what's that? It's a cough drop. drop. <laughs> that was in the no. 80s and it's 90s. Like, but it's like, that's their way of saying that you got bad breath. Bad breath. Yeah, you need a Luden. Um, <laughs> the other thing, too, and I, I do think, and I, I think it's safe to say Prince Paul kind of, I mean, if he didn't invent it, he was pretty, he definitely popularized it within Hip Hop the Skip thing. I mean, that was, it was not that common, I think, pre this. And no. you know, it was something that they kind of strung together and, and, uh, I mean, these guys were, you know, certainly, I think they kind of came to the table as sort of weirdos and, and, you know, it wasn't like this was, they were, you know, 
standard kind of like I mean even the whole like your you know take off your uh, bell bottom acid wash bell bottom jeans designed by your mama you know and like just the kind of like ragging on on some of the just dumb <laughs> Which shit is that just was funny going on. Still makes all me laugh. the time by the way <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like you just saying that now I, I and I distinctly remember like hearing that line and like kind of busting up but also thinking like I, you know I was thinking about how for I mean the one thing we haven't talked about is is the fact that like for like NWA was sonically incredible was um you know from an attitude and like performance perspective terrifying and like the showmanship was incredible the the like the daring the guts all of that stuff but like you know one thing it wasn't was like immediately relatable to like white kids in the curbs <laughs> um and or at least like it, uh, that's not to say that it wasn't popular there. It's just to say that it, it, oh, it was really popular there. Yeah. But this was, this was yeah, made by but, kids from the Burbs. Yeah. But these weren't stories that were, I'm saying like NWA wasn't like stories about like the lived experiences of people from like Long Island. And, and I think this is a little bit more universal, but like it's still got like, it, it, it's still, it, 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 it's comfortable in, who and what it is, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not sort of like, it, it, there's no aspect of this that feels like pretend. Um, no, I mean, from okay ghetto things uh, to taking yeah. the, uh, to taking the, you know, schoolhouse rock, you know, loop, which I, I do have to say, like, just I'll throw it back real quickly. One of the best intro songs, side one, track one ever. Like it just, I agree to take a, a track to that, like, um, you know, we all sort of grew up with, you know, I, I mean, I was in elementary school, obviously early eighties, late seventies, but there was no new, new schoolhouse rock then. I mean, that's the same shit we'd see in between Saturday morning cartoons or, or our teachers would play when there's a sub there too, you know? And then, so it was like this so familiar, you know, in a weird way and, and to loop it like that and just make it great. But I mean, and then a song like ghetto thing, which is actually is like a pretty street conscious song and talking about shit in the ghetto. And, and, you know, and you know, one thing I know for these guys, I mean, Amityville, where they're from, Long Island, is, you know, it's kind of like where people, they were all from Queens originally, you know, it's like, but it's where the people are, Queens or, or Bronx or whatever, it's where those people who had kind of made it escaped. To leave yeah, the city. You know, and, and left the city, and, and so that's where they kind of came from, like their parents were from the Bronx, or their parents were from Queens or whatever, and and uh, and yeah, I think it, it like had a weird, and then, you know, even have like a love song, like I know, or, you know, uh, sort of, and this is also like in 89, and when you can attest to this a little too, it's like, the height of the crack epidemic, AIDS, right? You know, I mean, it, there's yeah, a lot it was a of like, shitty time to be a teenager. Shit going on, <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> I was a preteen, but it was definitely shitty, you know. Yeah, this was this was my freshman year of college, um, and uh, but it was it was funny too, like the, um, you know, I did. They were it was like you said, Christian. It was very relatable. It was all suburban angst. You know, it's like girl trouble and. You know, jokes, dumb shit. Jokes. Yeah, and, and I, poop I, I jokes. I think it's and... the it's the fact that like the in this this has this like thing that I'm trying to describe has been around forever too, right? Like there's there's music that's like vulnerable and accessible, and then there's like hella fucking balls to the wall like T Rex, right? Yeah. And T Rex yeah. is like not apologizing for going bigger it's larger than life and nwa is not apologizing for going bigger there's confidence and swagger in what they're doing yeah and like 
like whether it's Dela or Radiohead, well, Radiohead appears to have no sense of humor and never have, and somehow that's like that works for them. But like, I'm trying to think of the better like comp here of you know, like Blur. I mean, mm-hmm. somebody you know, Damon Albarn, mm-hmm. who like subsequently worked with Dela a bunch. Like, they, those guys have a sense of humor about themselves, and there's like a certain like yeah, Jarvis Cocker. Yeah, it doesn't need to be. Uh, they don't feel the need to be like the coolest guys in the room all the time, and like I, I think that makes it. It just, it you just feel like you'd be you could be friends with them, joking along with them, and and again, like I don't want to detract from the actual music because, like, we've talked a lot about how like comedy isn't always something that you want to find in, in the music that you're listening to, but like, I think in this case, it. But there's it's a, not there's just a that difference it's between not comedy. Negative, it actually adds something. <laughs> there's a difference between comedy and and absurdism, and there is both on this record. There is, you know, there's attempts at comedy which are, you know varying success rates. Take them or leave them, yeah, exactly. But there is also, like, this wordplay, and, and I, you know, this album sat right alongside the Pixies for me. This was, um, you know, this album and Doolittle, uh, but particularly Surfer Rosa before it, you know, they were they were constantly on, you know, that's all I listened to, essentially. You know what I mean? You block out these years, and there was something about, Pixies too. They weren't like funny, but they were absurd. Like, um, you know, I mean, this guy's talking. You know, guys singing about Fred Flintstone in Spanish, and it's <laughs> there is you know. Whereas like the Beastie Boys were more antic and like funny, but if you listen to the the um, you know the verses in this De La Soul record, you're talking. You know, there's a lot of like weird wordplay, turning nouns into adjectives and turning. Uh, verbs into nouns and it like isn't it's just a it's a it is a, a type of writing that that is so singular you know so belongs to the, a particular individual that I think it's it's really cool and I you know I reading up on um the sadly recently deceased um Dave uh Jalicourt, um, you know, that guy was just a weird writer. He was just a, you know, he had a weird way of talking and it, and it found its way into the, into the phrase, phrasing and, and, and I'm not talking about the, you know, the choruses and the punchlines in, in this one. I'm talking about like just the setups, the sentence structure. It's just weird and I love it. Yeah, no, it is. Yeah. It's, it's a weird delivery. Weird. I mean, the guys, you know, their names even. I mean, Trugoy and, and Pasta Noose. It's like noise sloth <laughs> and yogurt spelled backwards. Like, what the fuck? Like, yeah. There's nothing There's nothing even, like, there's no reason cool for about those. It. It's just weird, you know? It's and just like, shit that you, that you, that you and your friends, you know, your friends have yeah, stupid was nicknames. Funny. They were yeah. dumb, like, I'm going to call you this. And, uh, I mean, the other thing, too, and just, you know, I was obviously a little younger than Wynn, but I was really into music and, and this would have been like my sort of seventh grade world being in New Jersey. And it was a uniting album. Like it was one that like hip hop was certainly becoming popular with like, you know, kids my age and stuff like that. And it was kind of the rebel music, you know, and to some degree and definitely like NWA and shit like that. But also like, you know, some of the other stuff like, you know, Big Daddy Kane and, and EPMD and groups like that too were definitely infiltrating white suburban youth, you know, in, in Jersey, but, and, you know, um, black kids as well. But like, there was um, there was something about this record that kind of like you know this was, was the consensus I'm, party album. Yeah, like everybody liked it. Like it was just sort of like oh yeah, like people who were kind of like into more, you know Led Zeppelin and, and shit like that dug it, and people who were into you know the Pixies and stuff dug it, and, and it was just this kind of like uniting, 
just fun record, you know, that like everybody liked. And, and I think it was native tongues kind of carried that on a little bit to some degree, but like there was just nothing like this. And there really has not been nothing since, you know, I was so happy to just hear how I mean, sonically it holds up, you know, you're like, Whoa, this is like track by track. It just, the, the, the production and the music and the blends and, and even the rhyming style. I, I mean, I'm a, I followed these guys, you know, pretty much up until like, you know, the last few years, like I've seen them live a few times and stuff like that. And, and I think they're, they're great MCs and their music definitely changes, you know, after this album, but like, but, uh, just to kind of have the thing you made in high school hold up this well is pretty crazy. Yeah, it peaked early. Yeah, my my poetry from that era is not as uh, evergreen, put it that way. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think the... the So to carry on your point about sort of the lyricism, I think like it's part of the reason it's so absorbing for me is the fact that it's almost entirely narrative. Which is like an, a big distinction from um, a lot of Public Enemy and NWA or like whatever we want to say or the the sort of rap comps of the time. Like I think um, you get drawn into this world of like characters right? mm-hmm. and and real people, um, and because you're kind of following along and like learning about their world. Yeah. Um, yeah. That- and in that sense, it's like it's it's very much it's not a concept album, but it kind of works that way, you know. Um, it's like, an album. It's a concept album without a concept. Yeah, totally. Well, or the, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's very it's very personal, I guess. It's yeah. Sort of the you're let into their 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 real like daily life. Um, I think it's one of those weird things too, where it's like you know, like the George Martin and the Beatles or something, where you just had these like two the three guys like Maceo. Pasenus and, and Trugoy, who were all friends, and Prince Paul, who had just, you know, departed Stesasonic, which was like a, a group that had gotten a little bit of notoriety, but he was kind of like, you know, I think a t- obviously a, a talent, right? And he was the youngest one there, kind of meeting at the right time. Like it literally, like I mean, if you hear the the story that I, I know is is that they met like Maceo was trying to do something in this like this music class and had this other rapper and met Prince Paul and then like was like I have these other guys that you might like it was just like one of those rare things so it was Prince Paul's first chance to sort of like try everything he wanted to try which he apparently did successfully here and these just kind of goofy weird like you know rappers guys that that, that had a great flow and, and kind of a you know great sense of humor but also like you know great wordplay and everything else so it was just this kind of like it's just one of those rare times where you have like the perfect melding of those things together, you know. It, it, those those happen every once in a while in music, and it was definitely happening. It's mm-hmm. it's luck, you know. It mm-hmm. makes you just want to throw people together and see what happens and see who's going to be friends. And yeah, I mean, it, it, there's there is just an element of like uh, true chemistry to all this. Um, I love, by the way, like also just listening to something like this. It. it but one last point I'll make before um, about, about sort of like how uh, you listen to things differently at different times. Like I, because I wasn't looking at the liner notes, because I wasn't reading about this stuff in advance, um, and because I was familiar with a lot of the other music and you know a lot of the other um, albums and and groups of this era. Like when Q-Tip grabs the mic, mm-hmm. I'm like. I just got so excited, right? Like, I, I didn't even know what I was going to hear next, but I was just like, fuck yeah, I love Q-Tip. Like, I, you know, I know who this is. Like, and, and that's one of those, um, 
I think that was one of those moments where it's like you realize how fun like feature tracks were um and you know god knows it's been beaten to death as a conceit in the in like rap music right mm-hmm. it's become like a a, a way to you know or, or it's a it, it it quickly became a very like commercial or commod like sort of choice right to to Guess. position like yeah. people for yeah for for a verse for to like stardom. you know yeah well and to people. elevate your yeah, or for the yes, exactly. Or somebody drops in and does you know Jay Z does a verse on your like your Memphis Bleak album or whatever, and like you know tries to launch him and that kind of stuff. It's it's um, but but this was like, you know, one of their buddies comes on and and it's just like it's it's great. Um, it's so much fun, and that's something that there's just it wasn't like the format of rock and roll doesn't really like lend itself to that, right? Um, it's not as uh it's it's you know you might have somebody like it's not come as over and play bass for your band or play keys for your band but yeah, yeah you're not like, gonna be able to tell the intricacies of like you know the yeah bass player it's hard to hear guesting on you know yeah i'm sure I'm, I'm sure some nerd can but like i yeah. can't you know and and whereas like in I this really case, hear the horns like being this one yeah yeah <laughs> yeah and actually, I mean, in its own way, like that's what sampling is, right? It's like it's providing all these like feature track kind of like platforms and like opportunity, like you know, you sort of put other people's work, like uh, you sort of posi- like position it within your own, so that to show it off mm. in the best possible way. Well, I, I um, once so. I once heard Chuck D uh, explain, you know, uh, tell the the story of why sampling was so prevalent in hip hop, and I. I thought it was, you know, just so simple and so logical. And, and, you know, he just said when they stopped funding uh, music programs in in public schools, you played the only instrument that was left, the stereo. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Um, So awesome, awesome listen. Yeah. So what what, what are the standouts for you? So let me pull up the track listing here and I can tell you. Um... Not so, I mean, I agree 100% that, like, yeah, right after you said that you don't know any of the track names, um, <laughs> it's like, uh, I've listened to it exactly once, so, like, I, so you, I might, you know... I'll well, you can identify it. them the way we do, like, oh, the Hall & Oates one, the Steely Dan one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the well... French one. Um, so, Magic Number, Change and Speak, um, I love Ghetto Thing, uh, I think it's a really good kind of like interesting change of, I mean, the Jennifer taught me and, and ghetto thing, like, um, transmitting live from Mars, like, and then into, I know mm. is like a really killer four <laughs> tracks of entertainment. Yeah, nice um, there. I, I will say the, uh, I think a little, uh, what is it? So I guess I like potholes in my lawn a lot. Um, I didn't know where that came from for a long time, and and you know shame on me for not knowing. But little old country boy, I wasn't familiar with until probably ten years later. Um, that is a classic. And then yeah, I think say no go, which is the Hall and Oates one. Yeah, um, you're like fuck. I hate Hall and Oates, but you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, that's and I the one the only thing that I like, kind of hit me the wrong way and it's a song I I knew I I don't think I necessarily knew that it was on this album but um was me myself and I and I just don't like it 
Mm. It just like it. It just doesn't. I mean, it fits kind of like it's of the era, obviously, but there's something like for an album that's this good end to end. Um, it feels a little like like a re, it's like reaching to be a single, for like an appendage. Else. Well, it's funny you should say that because that is exactly what it is. It is. Uh, they went. They brought the album in to Tommy Boy. Tommy Boy said. We need a radio single. We need a cussing. Yep. Oh, <laughs> yeah, no, that's what it felt like. That was like, that's super predictable. It's like somebody, they need a fucking radio single, and they're like, okay, so make it more like the shit that you hear on the radio. Yeah. Less so weird. They, Don't be weird. Don't be deep. weird this time. <laughs> but even, like, I I don't love that song either. I never did. I never understood why it was the single, because I thought, like, all the songs you just mentioned before that are better singles. And actually, the first single was Potholes in My Lawn, and the second single was... I know. I mean, it was uh, me, myself, and I. And um, but it was interesting um, because I actually love the sentiment of the song. It's it is um, them now that I know more about how they how this album was received and how people sort of thought of them and they how the uh, record label kind of uh, promoted them is like this is hippie rap, you know. And it was like, yeah, yeah. Fuck. no, it isn't. Um, so that whole song is basically about um, wanting, you know, not liking the way they're being positioned yeah, in by their by their record label. Can I right, ask you give one, like, one you defense? You guys don't own us. We get to like we are who we are, and mm-hmm. we're not going to fit into yeah. like, your box. Yeah. Basically, yeah. And I, I'll give one defense to me, myself, and I. And it's not. I, it's also not my favorite song by them. I, and I never like loved it as a single, but. Uh, I will say, like, and this is just something you didn't because there wasn't access to this stuff, and this was kind of pre like everybody going back and, and listening to disco music and shit like that. I'd never heard like Parliament before. I heard that song. You know, there, it's another thing to think about, like for the timing. Like a lot of these samples, like even the the Hollow Notes, I knew because I was of that age. But like the Steely Dan sample, and and I know or something like that. Like that stuff that like I had no idea what those were, and these songs actually made us. Or like you know, my my age group kind of explore some of that stuff. Like, oh, that's the that's the De La song, but it's no, that's Flashlight by Parliament, you know. Like, but we didn't know any of that stuff. So that's the only defense there. I would say that, but yeah, I agree. It's a, that, it's a totally forced single, and, and that's what it was. Well, having grown up, when it's I also their their biggest did, hit. I mean, it's their biggest hit ever. I did actually have Parliament singles. I did not own Parliament albums until I was much older, but um, uh, Flashlight and. Um, you know, tear the roof off. Um, what? What? Uh, there, there were two big hits. Um, Parliament had two big hits when I was a kid, and I had both singles. So that was, uh, you know, those are familiar, relatively familiar territory. And all the other stuff, I was. It was more just shocking that they would. Was that a free your mind and your ass will follow? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I. Um, or was it? The, you're talking about Maggot Brain, presumably. <laughs> no, I, I love Maggot Brain. I listened to that the other day, just from start to finish. It is. That is a ripping record, but um, the thing is that, that what was, we're talking about. The, you are talking about Parliament Funkadelic, right? Yes, Parliament Funkadelic yeah, yeah, singles. Yeah. Um, but they, you know, they actually, you know, this is I've talked I've talked to both of you at live, you know, great length about you know Top Forty Radio when I was a kid. Top Forty Radio. There's a lot of bad mealy seventies shit, but there was also like Led Zeppelin would chart and the Stones would chart and you know, Parliament would chart and the Ohio players would chart. You know, it's like there's mixed in with some of that crap is some of the great songs of all time. Um, 
you know, it's it's just a it was it was a mixed bag. Like there wasn't um, you didn't have radio wasn't really defined by a single genre like it is now. It wasn't siloed in the same way. It was actual human DJs playing songs that they liked or were getting paid. Yeah, to play. which is why I would not have known a Parliament song. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I had Paul Abdul and fucking shit like that. So. Yeah. <laughs> but the, 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 the thing that was so wild about De La Soul to me at the time was how they took music that was patently uncool like Hall and & Oates. And I, I like Hall and & Oates right. in retrospect. And I liked Hall and & Oates as a kid. But like in 1989, Hall and & Oates was not cool. And they made it, they, they realized what was good, you know, what the bones of what made Hall & Oates such a huge popular, hugely popular act was that the songs at their core were really good. Yeah, or Peg, you know, taking Peg and, and doing that sample. No, yeah, it totally makes sense. And even having like a Johnny Cash, Johnny Cash was not cool then either. No, you know, it was not. No, Johnny Cash was, <laughs> yeah, um, Johnny Cash was monumentally cool, but just nobody was listening to him. No, but nobody was listening to him. He was playing like supper clubs at that time. You know what I mean? Yeah, not, I saw him in a couple. Popular. Yeah, um, I saw him play Studio Fifty Four. With that, before. Uh... Before we we round out this um, podcast the same way that we round out every podcast, uh, let's break out our checkbooks and um, listen to a song by the Turtles. <laughs> Écoutez, à midi. Quelle heure est-il? Il est midi. C'est l'heure de déjeuner. Qu'est-ce qu'il y a à manger? Des saucisses. Écoutez et répétez. À midi. À midi. À midi. Quelle heure est-il Quelle heure Quelle heure est-il Est-il Quelle heure est-il Il est midi. 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 Il est midi. Il est midi. C'est l'heure de déjeuner. C'est l'heure. C'est l'heure de déjeuner. De déjeuner. C'est l'heure de déjeuner. Qu'est-ce qu'il y a à manger Qu'est-ce qu'il y a Welcome back to the Brother 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 podcast. We are going to end this podcast. The way we end every podcast by asking the trick question. Christian, what are you listening to? Jeremy? I'm listening <laughs> to. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, I knew that was coming my way. Thank you, Christian. Um, I'm no listening problem. to fucking De La Soul, and we just talked about 3 Dying Rising, and I'm also jumping back into the, some of the other albums that Tommy Boy had uh, held hostage. So. I'm going to give a quick shout out to De La Soul is Dead, Balloon Mind State, and Stakes is High. I, uh, I, I love this group, this album in particular that we just talked about. I'm not going to go into 359 Rising, but I also really think it's worth listening to De La Soul is Dead. You guys won't like it as much. It's still a really good album and with great tracks. And, uh, and I am a huge fan of Balloon Mind State as well. And, um, and I think Stakes is High has some good songs. I think De La was definitely a little bitter post the... Uh, the lawsuits and you can hear it on all of those and then they sort of lost um 
you know, they just kind of melded. They just weren't what was relevant in hip hop. And I think Balloon Mind State is like kind of their most sort of independent album. I mean, it's it's produced by Prince Paul, but it doesn't have a lot of the the frills that Dead and and uh, Three Feet have. But it has this really raw, and I think their rhyming skills and their kind of like seriousness on that album is is great. It's also just a you know they always have great beats and, and good samples and stuff, and it's really good. And then Stakes is High is when they kind of had a little bit of a renaissance with some of the Rockus Records folks and, and people like Most Def and Gorillas and, and things like that were really championing them and, and really influenced by them, and they helped a lot of those artists kind of also in a lot of ways you know influencing them. And, and I, I again, it's it's a lot rawer than what we just listened to and talked about. Um, but they're as good as any MC and, and I highly recommend like, uh, you know, first of all, these guys haven't got, been able to get any of the benefits of, of, you know, the streaming and, you know, RRP to, to True Goy, Dave, and that's so sad that he died right before this all came back out. But I, I just think getting as many listens in as possible as those albums too and checking them out. Um, they won't probably blow your socks off like Three Feet did, but I think they're all like worthy of, of checking out and they're pretty awesome. So I'm psyched to have them back. Christian win whoever wants to uh, jump ball yeah I so I would say well, I'll pick a book um that I just finished called Super Infinite the Transformations of John Donne which is by somebody named Catherine Rundell and it's like I just I don't read a lot of biography to be honest and I certainly don't read a, a lot of John Donne poetry but was just kind of interested in in something different and like I thought it was great um it's 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 short he has an interesting life, um, kind of a terrific walk through like a hundred years of, you know, history in the 15th and 16th centuries. And like, um, but also just, just really well written, tightly written, um, and, uh, sort of gives you a sense of like somebody's kind of personality. Um, but I think most of all, what I realized in, in reading it is that like, you, biography is written by like, the people who shouldn't be biographers a lot of the time mm-hmm. um, because it's, it's people who are sort of, you know, obsessed with the meticulous details of, of someone else's life, which they have to be in order to, to do the research properly. Um, and, and this is no different. Um, she's a, like a fellow at all souls and, and um, you know, wrote her thesis about this. And, uh, but I think for some reason is able to, or um, like really, uh, tries to to bring him alive um in a way that makes you sort of think about him as as like a relevant kind of you know a a a person sort of of your own time um and and i wonder if that's maybe because she's actually a pretty famous uh children's book author apparently Hmm. um so just like a different a different sort of writing style and spin and approach on biography but for anybody who's like looking to read something different i suggest you know i definitely recommend it Hmm. well i'm gonna go uh an unusual route for me and actually talk about new music um i've been listening to two albums uh, a lot and um you know i think they're they're getting reasonably well they're reasonably well received but i think because they're kind of you know they're suffering the same fate i think that um you know we always talk about with um you know spoon and bands like that who are super consistent and um you know have have a signature sound and that is the new tennis album pollen which i really like and the new u.s girls album bless this mess uh, both of which are i think terrific albums and and may suffer the fate of being preceded by um consistently good work but you know 
so be it. They're, just, they're still putting out great stuff. Um, and so that is my capper. The one thing I do want to mention um, is, uh, you know, with De La Soul coming out on Spotify yesterday, I just looked on Spotify and Three is the Magic Number has 2.5 million listens in the day. Nice. Which is, and it's 35 years old. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, that's insane. That's beautiful. That's a great thing. So um, anyway, you want to put a, a song on the um, ever-lasting gobstopper of a, of a playlist? Christian? How many we got on there now? God, no. It's gotta we be haven't reached the days, 700. Four days of four, music. Yeah, we haven't reached the 7 billion, 400 million, 337 songs that we initially aimed for. So we, we <laughs> keep going. So we, we endure. Um, all right, I'm gonna throw on uh, a song that like came just I put on a playlist recently and and um, have been spinning a lot, which is "Let It Bump" by Missy Elliott and Timbaland yeah, nice. off 2003's album "This Is Not a Test." Nice, Jer. Yeah, I'm gonna stick with like I'm all day law today, and uh, I'm actually gonna go off of I think one of their best singles, and it's off "Day Law Souls Dead." I don't think either of you will mind. I know when you love this song too. I'm gonna to go roller skating jam named Saturday. That's a great song. It is a phenomenal track. I listened to it yesterday. I actually did listen to Blue and State of Mind yesterday and really liked it. Um It's great. I am going to not reward the turtles. Um I am going to I'm gonna go with a song that we mentioned earlier and uh as being kind of cheesy and mainstream but it's awesome and that is uh bust a move by young mc nice <laughs> great <laughs> you bring me back to my right. seventh grade dance where i got the i had that i had that, that i had that single yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right, there, bust all right. Move. this was fun well thanks for everybody for joining in and uh it was that was a really fun yeah, conversation fun. i had been dying to talk yeah that about was awesome soul Talk to you guys later. Later. Buddy. I'm Wyndham Lewis. On behalf of my brothers, Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis, thank you very much for listening to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Many thanks also to our heroic producer, Damian Kendall, and to Simon Doom for our epic intro music. Learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>